Now for our sermon today, it will be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, The Reality of the Kingdom of God. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I am going to do my best to keep my voice during this. seems to be allergy season for me. So uh, I apologize if I'm going to be uh, coughing a little bit. You guys are in the splash zone. Uh, I'll just give you a warning. I want to ask you a question. I think I know the answer. But have you ever wondered what the kingdom of God is going to be really like. You ever spent some time just letting your mind wander and think about that and imagine the reality of the kingdom of God? If you haven't done that, I suggest that you give it a try. And maybe you pull out some scriptures. Certainly, there are many that just paint a, a beautiful image of the kingdom of God on earth. And, you know, you can imagine yourself in it. And that's, uh, that's one of the really effective ways to purpose your life, right? When you're imagining yourself doing something. And so that's worthwhile doing as well. But living in the kingdom of God, the reality of it, that Jesus has returned, he has come back to the earth, what does that mean? look like? How does it change life for, for people on the earth? What difference does it make? We can imagine a lot of excitement. We can imagine wonder, right, where certainly people that have never believed in God or believed the Bible, and, that, and now it's suddenly present and real, and he's really here. So we would have wonder and excitement. We can imagine a world of peace. Everybody's peaceful. Can you imagine a world like that? That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? No crime. And, you know, uh, if you're of a certain age, you can think back uh, to a time when there was less crime, right? had those experiences, many of those. And so we can, we can start to imagine what a world under the kingdom of God, under the rulership of Jesus Christ, would really look like. No crime, no war, an end of abuse of children, of women, of, of races, an end of hate. A world where truth and love are just reigning supreme. Who would like to go there right now? Right now. And certainly as the days get darker, the more we want, right? And we're told to think about that, meditate on that, more and more as we see the day approaching. The best world that we can imagine. No more starvation, no sickness, and... As we know, there is, there is death, but at a, a ripe old age. And then there's a transition into a new life in Christ Jesus. A world that will be full of beauty. 
of justice, of grace and mercy. Everyone will have a healthy and safe place to live. The scripture tells us that none will make us afraid. That people can live in their own land, in their own piece of property, with their own house, and be safe in their possessions. And nobody will make us afraid. There will be one world government. And it's not man's. It's not the one that we know that they're trying to make. It's not the one that we know that they're trying to create over us and rule over us. This is a kingdom. There is a king. And we don't have to bother to vote anymore. Sounds weird to a bunch of Republicans, doesn't it? But that is the reality that we are going to have on the kingdom of God on the earth. No corrupt and lying politicians. No corrupt and lying ideologies. Only absolute and total truth will be permitted in the kingdom of God. It will be a better world than this. So this is just a little of perhaps we might imagine what the kingdom of God would be like. But does all of that happen immediately? Does Jesus return and spray magic dust around the world and everybody starts to behave better and starts to treat one another with the kind of love and mercy that we should? Does that all happen immediately or is there a process and is there work to do in order to bring about that better world? I think we probably know the answers to that. Humankind will not all of a sudden get healed and redeemed and suddenly transformed into goodness and light. We know human nature all too well. Now, of course, our enemy, as we can see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, that great enemy, he is bound for a thousand years. He is locked up, locked away. So we no longer have to deal with his help in how we live or how we conduct ourselves. But we still have to deal with our human nature. So without the enemy, that will be a big change, of course. But this is nothing compared to what needs to happen on the earth for the fullest realization of the kingdom of God to really be present and to be a reality for everyone that's on the earth. How do we know this? Well, we have a set of examples. Apostle Paul tells us that the scriptures are given to us for examples, and so we want to know how the people of earth will respond and react and, and be after they've gone through the end of the age we have a group of people that went through their own version of the end of the age. And we find their story, pick up their story, in Numbers chapter 14. It is the people of Israel, right? They came through a version of <laughs> the end of the world. 
Think about the plagues and the, the, the power of God that was made manifest and that they saw and then they were released and, and, and God led them out into the wilderness, but out of bondage, out of slavery. He fed them along the way. He gave them his law. He, he provided for every need. And then, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1, they said this. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. What do you think of that mindset? After everything they had seen, all that they experienced of God's protection and liberation of them, what kind of mind says, let's go back and deliberately, voluntarily submit ourselves back under the slavery of Egypt. What kind of mind does that? A broken one. A broken mind does that. And when we look at it in this story, we think, how could they do that? And yet, of course, the world is full of human beings that do that on a daily basis. In individual cases, we call that a familiar destructive, where the destructive environment that we're familiar with is the one that we return to over and over again. We find that in addictions, we find that in relationships, we find that throughout the world. And so that's exactly what we had with the people of Israel. You know, I. I don't think we fully appreciate the kind of slavery that they were under. It wasn't indentured servitude. It was much more akin to the African slave trade. Just horrendous, horrendous conditions living in under the rule of Egypt. And they were broken. They're broken and illogical minds <laughs> traumatized and, and their, their spirit so corrupted. And we have to remember the, all of the religious influences of Egypt too that, that were right there under the surface. And when Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law of God, what did they do? Now's our chance. And it was on the anniversary of a day of worship, a pagan practice. So they were broken and traumatized people. Israel saw all of these incredible sights, but they wanted to return to Egypt anyway. And it's interesting what God then tells Moses. He says, 
I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. So dropping down to verse 11, God, the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Why was God doing that? What was the reason for that? Well, it turns out, of course he changes his mind, and we'll look at that, but it turns out that their kind of brokenness needed a generational change. That generation was, you could say in a certain sense, irredeemable. As far as being qualified to or appropriate to enter into the promised land. Because think about it. God has called out these people from, from their bondage. He's remembered the promises to Abraham. And, and what was it that he told Abraham? Well, I'm not going to put your people into the land until the people that are in the land currently I have judged and removed from control over that land. And their sin was not full. God could not put in a bunch of broken people that would just go back to doing the same thing. And of course, later generations did. But his goal was to bring a healthy group of people into the promised land. In verse 17, he says, or Moses says to him, okay, God, I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means, uh, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. But God, you've been forgiving these people pretty much daily, <laughs> right, all the way through until this point. Can you forgive them again in your greatness and in your mercy? And of course, the irony is he is talking to the member of the Godhead who is the mediator, who is our advocate, and Moses playing that role of Jesus Christ. What was God's response? It was recognition that these people were too broken to enter into the land. He was not willing to let that generation enter into the land. And so then the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I'm looking forward even all the way back then, are looking forward to the kingdom of God when the whole earth will be filled with his glory. The glories that he showed Israel. And then he says, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly 
shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall the, any of those who rejected it, uh, rejected me, see it. So he didn't wipe them out. He didn't destroy them. But they could not enter the promised land. They were broken. Broken by years of slavery, by oppression, by corrupt religious practices that had come into their lives. I mean, they barely had a sense that there was a God of their forefathers. Uh, you look at the, some of the, the laws that they were given. I mean, they had to be tol told that their toilets needed to be outside of the camp, right? They needed to be guided and taught everything. They were absolute slaves. And we tend to forget that. So this generation were not psychologically and spiritually healthy enough to go into the promised land. So it was a generational process of healing. The next generation, their children, would enter the promised land. But they were probably not without problems too, as we see. But it was still better than the previous generation was. So seeing just how one nation can be so broken, how does this compare with the people of an entire world, this earth, after they've gone through the Great Tribulation? What do those people's minds look like? What is that like? We don't really want <laughs> to examine that too closely. But Jesus talked about, he gave us the synopsis of what happens at the end of the age in Matthew 24. And he gives us some idea, some clue. He says, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. A lot of what we're seeing here is more and more of what we've seen throughout history. More wars between nations. And those lead to famine. Those lead to diseases. Those lead to consequences on the earth because of man's own actions. But there's something singularly unique that happens here. And I think often as Christians, we've read this and we just kind of take it for granted, because the early church was persecuted, 
the church was persecuted throughout the Middle Ages by the supposed church, and we just kind of take it for granted that there's going to be persecution of the saints, of Christians. But why is that? And as I was reading this this morning, I started to realize why this is. Because Christians are trying, at least, when they don't always do it perfectly, but we try and stay truthful and faithful to God's law, to the, to the moral principles that he's given us to live by. We try and follow and stay true to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we become a repository of the divine law. Because we know the difference between right and wrong as given to us by the word of God. Now, why would that make us a target? I used to think, well, how, could, how would this actually transpire in the modern Western world? You don't really need to ask that question anymore, do you? Because what we're facing is something that maybe we had a hard time imagining. But we are now seeing sustained assaults on the Judeo-Christian values that have created our entire culture. We see that on a daily basis. And there's more and more coming. And the evil that is behind it, obviously it's the enemy that's behind it, but the wickedness of man that is engaged in these practices is trying to remove every element and deconstruct our society, which is based on a Judeo-Christian value. Even our legal system is based on the Ten Commandments. We have this very long history that is documented, and it's clear. That is why we will become the target. We will be the last vestiges of the civilization that was built upon the word of God. It makes perfect sense to me. I hope you're following. Because I think we are seeing what Jesus said starting to come to pass. It begins with persecution, and it begins with lawsuits, right, to make people produce things for in, in values that they don't agree with. And then where does it go? Well, Jesus has already told us. So this is what we're looking at when Jesus describes this. And then something happens. Because when you remove all the institutional knowledge from a business, from an organization, from a society, what happens? It stops working. It stops functioning. It becomes dysfunctional. Because all the principles that we followed are now eliminated. 
And so what is wrong is right, and what is right is wrong, and you can do whatever you want. And, it's, and, and those that would stand up against it are attacked because they are violating other people's free speech, and everything becomes upside down and topsy-turvy, and that's what we're seeing. And so what we're actually witnessing is the start of the collapse of the Western civilization because we're removing everything that underpinned it and supported it. And then when that happens, we get what Jesus says in verse 12. Because lawlessness will abound. Because we've removed the law. We've removed everything that, that supports our society. But because that lawlessness abounds, the goodwill, the love, the goodwill that people have toward each other in society will grow cold. Society collapses at that point. That's what we're looking at. But Jesus says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom of God will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. And then he describes terrible times as the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Dan Daniel the prophet. And then he tells those that in, their, in Judea to flee, to get out. There's war coming, tremendous death and destruction. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. Run, get out of here, flee, find a place to hide. Pray that your flight not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor shall ever be. Think about that statement. Jesus is telling us this. And he knows about everything that we are going to do as a planet moving forward from the time that he said this. So think about World War I and World War II the most costly conflicts in human history, and they are overshadowed by the things that are coming at the end of the age. And he says, unless those things, those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So, this is the part we don't like to think about when we think about the coming of the kingdom of God. Everything that comes before it. <laughs> we want to just skip right over all that stuff. Let's get to the good part. Can we change the plan a little bit and just get to the, the return of Jesus? I'd be for it. Anybody else want to join me? We can petition God to change the plan. But he has his purposes. He has his reasons just as he did with Israel. So the consequences of this are a globally traumatized human being. How do they get restored? How do they get healed? How do they remember how to feed themselves? How do we heal those minds and those spirits? How does that happen? Because it has to happen, right? Because these people are going to live on into the kingdom of God. And they, they're part of those that Jesus has come to save. 
He loves them. Well, remember what the prophet Isaiah told us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then there's an important part, this next verse. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Our heart longs for that, doesn't it? Let's be there. Let's hit the fast-forward button and be in that kingdom. But notice, it's not instant. It's not magical. It doesn't just wrap the whole earth and everybody's great now. We have a planet that is destroyed. We have communities of people that are barely surviving, traumatized people. The kingdom of God starts place, a single place, and grows out from that place. In Zechariah 14, in verse 1, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, that the remnant of the people should not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half toward the south. And in that day it shall be that living waters we go to Zechariah 14 and verse 8. That living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea. Both in summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall, it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. Healing and restoration starts in that one place. Jesus returns. The Mount of Olives is split. A water, a, a, a gushing river flows out of that, east to west, to start to heal the earth. You remember, the scripture told us that the kingdom of God starts from that place, and the increase of it, and the increase of its peace, continue forever. And it will grow out from this place to the rest of the earth. It even changes the landscape. Verse 10 says, The land will be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. The whole landscape will be changed. It will start to lower those mountains, raise the hills, and create this whole plain. And there will be a place for the people to dwell in it. And no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. 
then we get the start of the kingdom of God on earth. The first city to be restored, reclaimed, is Jerusalem. And it's a safe place to live, a safe place to be. And it increases from there. Where am I going with all of this? How does this help us today? Well, Jesus, you know, answered lots of questions about the kingdom of God. People wanted to know about the kingdom of God. And he gave us a lot of parables and stories about the kingdom of God. In Matthew 25 and verse 14, there's a very famous one that we know. It's, uh, there's a, another version of it over in Luke as well. And it's for us today, and it relates to the kingdom of God, and it relates us to the kingdom of God. He says in verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Who is that? I think it's Jesus. He's getting ready to travel to a far country. Not much time is going to pass before he is sacrificed and then his resurrection and then he leaves the Mount of Olives. And so he's telling us that this relates to, to the disciples, the apostles, the church, but to us as well. And he says <coughs> that he called his own servants and delivered to, to them good. Now, in the story, it's talents, it's weights of, of, of measures of money, shekels. But for us, what are those goods? They are the, well, the Holy Spirit, for one. They are the innate talents and gifts that God has given us, the character that he's building in us, the values that he's instilled in us, his law, his word and a love for him. These are the talents in this story. And to one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. And we know that. You know, there are some people that are really, what do we call them? Talented, right? And we'll see people that just have just tremendous gifts, and you're like, how did that happen? Well, God just gives gifts to men, as the scripture tells us. And he just liberally gives people gifts of their personalities, of their nature, skills, intelligence, a heart for others. So many different ways that God builds out these talents in us. And of course, as his people with whom his spirit resides, he has put special talents in us. Gifts of the spirit to help us produce the fruits of the Spirit. And to each according to his own ability, he gave all these gifts. And immediately he went on a journey and the, asked the disciples and the, the apostles. They probably felt pretty immediate after the resurrection. He wasn't around for very long. And then he returned to heaven, to the throne room of God. So, he went on a journey, and then he who had received five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received 
uh, two gained two more also. But he who had uh, received one went and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, after a long time, like how long has it been? 2,000 years? A long time. How long? After that long time, the Lord of those servants came and to settle the accounts with them. And so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you've delivered for me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents. I've produced fruit. I've, I've, I've become more. I've developed more. I've given more. His Lord said to, them, to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I will make you, uh, and, it, and then he also, to the two, the one that received the two talents, the same thing. I gave you two, uh, you gave me two, I've done more. And we know the story. I produced more. And then he came to the one that had the one talent. And he said, I know you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talents in the ground. Look, here, I haven't lost what you gave me. Just giving it back. not enough. He's called a wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I, that I demanded more. You knew that I wanted profit. That I wanted to reap where I didn't sow. You should have at least put the money with the bankers. Right? The interest would have been at least something. And of course, he didn't. And so, it was taken from him and given to who? The one that produced he could produce more. Where is he producing more? Where is he going to produce more? In the kingdom of God. He says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the kingdom of God. And I'm going to expect you to produce more in the kingdom of God. So what does all this mean for us and for the kingdom of God and, and our place in it? What is this about? This is about learning how to produce fruit now. This is about learning to increase on what God has given us. And we're not alone in this. He's with us in it. He is far away, but he is intimately close in our hearts. He dwells within us. And so, we are to be about producing fruit. We are to be about increasing the talents. Where are we increasing those? Wherever we can. So that may be in us. It may be working in our hearts and in our minds to understand ourselves, to improve, to overcome temptation and sin and brokenness. 
It may be in our relationships, to improve our relationships, to not be embittered or angry with those that maybe we've disagreed with, but to improve and resolve and come together in the relationships with the world, to tell them about how Jesus transforms our life, has done so. It's about bringing healing. It's about being like Christ, bringing that healing and that restoration that he wants to bring to the earth. I'm going to skip over a little bit of this for time. Um, and I'll just conclude with, with what Jesus called his mission to be, and I think he called our mission to be, as we are trying to increase the investment that he has made in us. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. Jesus, you know, he sat, sat in the, 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 the synagogue there and, and he read this. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. I want to stop there and just point out that verse 2 is a pivot point. Verse 1 is his ministry on the earth now, himself directly and through us, because his spirit works in us. And we took on this mantle, didn't we? We took on the spirit of Christ Jesus, and we took on the same ministry to minister to one another, to minister to the community, to help those that are poor, to help those that are brokenhearted, to not turn away when somebody is weeping and needing comfort. A complete stranger, perhaps, sitting at a gas station. That it would be so easy to just walk by, but instead just sit down and hear their request. Help them in what they ask for to comfort all that mourn, to bring healing, right? Well, that comes after, again, the day of vengeance. And that day of vengeance is the end of the age. It is everything that precedes the establishment of the kingdom of God. And then to comfort all that mourn, all that went through it, everyone that is broken psychologically, spiritually, physically, and to take the lessons that we learned about growing and developing ourselves and improving with our own talents, the things that God has given us and the spirit in us, to comfort them, to console them who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may, may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. This is our future. 
This is what we're called to be a part of, to help build and rebuild. But in order to do that, in order to help those that have gone through terrible trauma at the end of the age, we ourselves have to have grown and developed and produced more talent in our life, in the lives of others, together as a community. God is looking for those 